CBS Eye on the World. I'm John Batchelor. 1932, British Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin. The bomber always gets through. That guided the decision-making of the Royal Air Force, of the Luftwaffe, of the American Air Force when it showed up in the 1940s. However, I learned from George Friedman, the founder and the chairman of Geopolitical Futures, a subscription site, that air war in the 20th century, air war in the 21st century has some important caveats. George, a very good evening to you. Your remarks hinge upon the drone and missile attacks on Kiev and other other infrastructure targets in Ukraine. However, you reflect on what we've learned about strategic bombing and success. Stanley Baldwin said the bomber always gets through. Was he wrong, George? Good evening to you. Well, the bomber doesn't always get up, and even World War II didn't get through always. Uh, but with the rise of anti-aircraft uh, systems, uh, air defense systems uh, that operate on sensors and so on, it's become harder and harder for aircraft to get through, especially manned aircraft. And that's why we're using drones. With drones, we may lose the drone. We won't lose a, fl- a flyer. So air, there's, it is effective. It has drawbacks, but it's never decisive. And the results. Now, here is the, pu- here is the puzzle. The results of air wars are said to be massive because you can see the pictures long afterwards. Uh, the picture that's vivid in my mind is the pile of dead human beings after Dresden. However, what about the success, the ambition is to shorten the war? Does it work? It hasn't so far. Uh, think of a German attack on London. It didn't break them. Think of the American-British attacks on Germany. After the attacks were went on for months, Germany still had a major production capability. Think of the U.S. bombing of Hanoi. Uh, it did not force them to capitulate. So you can't look at air power as it was in the 1930s, as transforming everything in war. It is an adjunct to warfare, but in the end, the poor, bloody infantry have to get through. Yes, the infantry. But before we go to the infantry, the Russians are uh, deploying missiles of all f- of kind, I, ha- I hear from the news, and also uh, uh, long-range cruise missiles launched by aircraft. And now the drones that we're told they're purchasing from Iran. Is that showing any effect on the ability of Ukraine to wage the war? So far, not. Uh, Remember, they're deploying missiles, but missiles are very expensive to build. Uh, They're not like drones. Uh, They're highly technical things. Wasting them on tactical targets is not really a good idea. As the drones they're getting from the uh, Iranians, they're quite competent. But they have very fairly low yield in terms of explosion, and you have to use a lot of them. So the problem with all of these air solutions is you have to have a lot of them. You have to saturate the horizon, or you have to have incredible precision. And the answer is that that incredible precision isn't there. The other possibility is terror, to wear down the population so that it capitulates or flees or no longer can 
conduct offensive operations. The other day, during what was said to be a major missile strike aimed at Kiev, there was a video of the people in the underground, the subways. The Kiev subway is quite spectacular. It looks like something associated with the palace. And young people were there with their iPhones talking or, or surfing the net. Nobody looked terrified. Nobody looked in any fashion anxious about what was raining down on the city above. So has the population of Kiev achieved what you mentioned the population of London achieved during the the air assault by the Luftwaffe? They've They've adapted to it. It's become normative. Uh, it does after a while. And the alternative is surrender. Now, you have to accept the idea that the British were not going to surrender political reasons. They were prepared to take casualties to people. Uh, the Germans weren't going to surrender. The North Vietnamese weren't going to surrender. And this is a question of what is the relationship between the government and the people. If the government has the confidence of the people and the people's bought into the government's mission, you can't knock them out by air power. They will take the casualties. Therefore, we come to the question now, does terror work? Does it work, George? Was the, is the opinion of the, the Air Force fighters that terror has a lasting effect and it changes the nature of conversation? Well, I certainly would be terrified, but it turns out that it really doesn't. You look for the example of where did air power terrify a community into capitulation, forcing capitulation, and it hasn't happened. It's been the opposite. So what it is is a very effective military weapon, which in the context of other military capabilities help wage war. And that's what the Russians are doing at this point. They're waging an air campaign that is designed to take out particular targets frighten people if possible, but they're not trying to do uh, saturation bombing cities. And what comes next? Your essay in Geopolitical Futures indicates a ground campaign. Uh, right now, we're getting headlines about Mr. Putin visiting Mr. Lukashenko in Belarus. We're also getting constant headlines about how uh, General Armageddon, Sarovakin is his name, an Air Force general now in charge of Ukraine, is consolidating and organizing his forces. Uh, do you see anything that looks like a major ground campaign developing in the in the late winter, early spring? There'll have to be one. Uh, the Russian capability is smashing through and occupying territory. This is the key of war. Uh, if you can't occupy the territory, even if you've devastated it, you haven't won. But the Russians have a problem, which is that the Ukrainians have developed into a very effective fighting force. They are more effective than the Russians at every point. And while the Russians can inflict casualties, particularly on cities, that doesn't win wars, the Russians will have these new recruits. But going to war with new recruits uh, is not going to be very successful. It takes you at least six months to develop an effective or quasi-effective soldier and then he has to be blooded. He has to experience war. And this will take a very long time. So if Russia has this strategy in mind, which I think it does, it's also prepared for the long war. Belarus, George, the comments I saw repeatedly about the Putin visit to Belarus was that Lukashenko had been reluctant to join in the attack on Ukraine and that Putin was going there to make it very clear to him that there was no choice here. 
Does that risk a wider war because Belarus's border with Poland is um, a naked risk? Yes, but first, the Belarusian army is not large enough to constitute a decisive force. Uh, but it does attack from a direction that he wants. That is, it attacks to the south, cutting off Ukrainian defenders from Russian attack, if he succeeds. On the other hand, just to the west of them is another power, which is turned into a major military power. You can't underestimate them. Uh, the Poles. And if the Belarusians move, now Poland is at risk. And the Poles have made it pretty clear in various ways that whether the U.S. wants it or not, it will get involved in a war at that point. The Patriot missiles. Here's a puzzle that's come up about air war. Patriot missiles are first rate, uh, top of the line, anti-air. These Patriot missiles also require a great deal of training. So are we looking at the future, George? Patriot missiles would be best defending large concentrations of symmetrical warfare units, in other words, an army that was ready to counterattack. Patriot missiles are anti-aircraft systems that are particularly good at high altitude. Uh, some of the drones are coming in at high altitude, but and they have or can be given guidance systems that will pick up the drones. So it could take it down, but it is fiendishly expensive, not just financially in terms of manpower and other capabilities, to use these super systems against cheap drones. But the Russians want to force us into that by using the drones. Let us use the expensive systems and let them, hopefully, from their point of view, bomb a few of them, knock them out. So each side is exploring carefully on the edges of what the next move is. And there is no great next move for them, aside from fighting it out. But each side is kind of probing to what's possible. And do you have expectation, George, that this can be resolved in 23, our, your final thought for the year? I think it will be. I think the Russians realize that they've wrecked their entire economy and they're not going to win. They're not going to beat the Ukrainians because the U U.S. won't allow that to happen. The Ukrainians are going to face the fact that some concessions have to be made to the Russians. And the Americans will impose that on them. But I think that this can't go on because neither side has a clear channel to victory. The Ukrainians can't throw the Russians out of Russia, obviously. And the Russians, unless they come up with something that we haven't seen, are just not able to drive the Ukrainians out. So it's time for peace. And Putin said uh, yesterday that he's prepared to talk to the Ukrainians. And the U.S. has said that it wants talks. And so has um, Zelensky. George Friedman, the founder and chairman of Geopolitical Futures, a subscription site. Stay tuned for more of CBS Eye on the World with John Batchelor. This is CBS Eye on the World. I'm John Batchelor. North Korea testing solid fuel missiles. Russia and China join exercises off the Japanese waters. Ukraine, President Zelensky seeking more and more weapons, the United States mentioning Patriot missiles. Russia, a visit by Vladimir Putin to Lukashenko 
in Minsk talking about Lukashenko's Belarusian army getting involved or at least the possibility of a, of a Belarus front in a, an offensive against Kiev. All of these are on the map. And I welcome John Bolton writing at 1945 most recently about the response so far. What we know is the plan in Washington. John, the heart of the matter is these all look to be the same threat to the United States. Does the State Department see it that way? Good evening to you, John. Good evening. Well, I think the administration's problem overall is that it does not have a really a comprehensive vision for, for how to handle this multiplicity of threats simultaneously. They've certainly written a national security strategy, but I personally think it's very weak on China. That's the principal threat. Uh, and it's it's been a day late and a dollar short for most of the assistance we've given to Ukraine. We've given a lot. There's no doubt about it, not out of the goodness of our hearts, but because it's in our interest to do it. But what's the strategy for Ukraine to win the war? What What's the strategy to defend Japan and South Korea with this increasingly ominous uh, signaling by the combined forces of Russia and China, uh, which, as I've said before, have produced already a kind of entente between themselves, maybe a division of labor, but also prepared to operate together when they are in the same territory as they are in East Asia. So the administration, uh, really, it, it's a kind of a whack-a-mole approach. They see a problem, they try and deal with it. They may deal with it well or poorly, but, but there's not a lot of uh, integration, I think, in their overall thinking. I want to concentrate on East Asia because North Korea fired those missiles and the joint exercise is going on right now. First, the threat. Uh, You write very carefully in 1945 that North Korea is a client state of Beijing. Does Washington, does the Biden administration see that, that these are not separate creatures? There's all one. Well, they do not. And I'll have to say 20 plus years ago, I I would have said they're separate as well. But I think it, it, you know, ultimately you have to appreciate reality. And uh, China could stop North Korea's belligerent activity, its nuclear program, its ballistic missile program uh, at the drop of a hat, because without China's economic and other support, uh, the Kim Jong-un regime, the family regime would collapse. Uh, China chooses not to do that, even while saying, oh, it's out of our hands, because this aggressive, hostile North Korean surrogate suits China's interest. It occupies the United States, it occupies Japan and South Korea, preoccupies their minds. Uh, and that diverts our attention from China, not saying North Korea itself is not a threat, but by China saying, oh, there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, it forces us to try and do something about it, which we failed to do in the sense of stopping them for over 20 years. Now for the other side of the equation, uh, Japan has made a decision. Prime Minister Kishida has announced 2 percent GDP for expenditures for the military. Is that a significant factor now, John, with regard to China? Well, it's a huge decision. It's probably the most significant uh, military decision Japan has made since 1945. Uh, It doesn't amend the pacifist constitution. Uh, Former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe had thought about that and uh, didn't uh, did, wasn't able to achieve it before he retired. He's obviously since been tragically assassinated. But uh, in, in a way, you don't need to worry about what the Constitution says if Japan, in the next five years, as uh, the prime minister has pledged, doubles its budget. And indeed, it'll be more than double its budget. Uh, but from 1% of gross domestic product to 2%, which, by the way, is the NATO target. So uh, if Japan succeeds in doing that and with only a few assumptions about a growing Japanese economy in the next five years, meaning 2% of a higher number is a bigger number. If that happens, 
Japan will have the third biggest military in the world behind only the U.S. and China. That is a huge development, a huge contrast with Germany. What is the significance of Japan looking for 500 Tomahawk missiles? What capability is that, John? Well, the Tomahawks, which are a fantastic asset in our arsenal, are undeniably offensive weapons. Uh, And that in itself is a major shift for the Japanese who call their military the self-defense force. Uh, I've been on some of their naval vessels. They look a lot like U.S. Navy vessels to me, not a self-defense force. But but by buying tomahawks, they now the Japanese will have the capacity from the Japanese islands to hit any target they want in North Korea and deep into China as far as Beijing. And if you don't think they didn't notice that in China, uh, uh, it's worth worth looking at again. There's a new administration in Seoul, President Yoon. Where is he on the North Korean threat? Because he's clearly not his predecessor. No, that's absolutely correct. He's embroiled in domestic issues right now. But I think uh, President Yoon is a real potential partner to look at steps to deal with this North Korean threat in a realistic way and also to overcome longstanding difficulties in the South Korean-Japanese relationship. It's very important for the United States. We have great relations with Japan. We have great relations with South Korea. The two of them do not have great relations. We would all be stronger uh, and more capable of uh, protecting ourselves if the three of us could work together. The Japanese arming over these next years indefinitely, is that a counter to the aggression that China is showing with all those ICBMs with nuclear-capable warheads? Well, it's a very important step. There are other things going on as well. For example, we've talked before about the AUKUS program announced last year, Australia, UK, US building nuclear-powered submarines for Australia. Those will be American submarines, uh, our design, basically. It's like putting 10 American submarines in the water. I think Japan could well ask for the same. I think other countries along uh, China's Indo-Pacific periphery will be encouraged by by this. It will be a sign of Uh, both increased American commitment, but also increased commitment by the countries involved. And I think we'll see a bandwagon effect here. The more that this moves ahead, the more we'll see other countries want to join in. And this joint exercise between Russia and China warships, including the flagship of the Russian fleet in the Pacific, I know that they've met before in the high seas. Is there any significance to this, John, other than exercise? Well, I think it's a clear political signal in East Asia uh, the the, uh, the the wars between Japan and Russia, uh, where the Japanese essentially destroyed the uh, the Tsarist Navy uh, before World War One, have never been forgotten by the Russians or by the Japanese either. And to have these two ancient rivals, China and Russia, uh, doing joint exercises, clear signal to Japan uh, about what they need to worry about. We're coming to the end of a horrible year, John. I know there are a number of them in the 20th century. I think this qualifies in the 21st century. It's been said and read, and I've read, John, repeatedly, that things are very dangerous, perhaps more dangerous than any time in in this century. Do you agree with that, John, or do you think things can be contained? Well, I think uh, if we look back at the period of the Cold War where there was a risk of a bipolar exchange of nuclear salvos between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, I, I do consider that the most dangerous point we've ever reached. But the danger point now is there are a lot more nuclear powers and, and others striving to become nuclear powers. 
and I think uh, the tectonic plates in, in geostrategic affairs around the world are shifting. The question is, are we watching what's happening? Are we aware of it? Are we planning for it? Uh, or, or are we just acting like observers, which I'm, I'm afraid is the more accurate and, and uh, more accurate description and the more dangerous one? Yes, and in our final 30 seconds, the Kremlin is talking about a long war. Do you agree, John, in Ukraine, a long war? Well, if it is a long war, it will be to the Kremlin's benefit. Uh, I think right now they can't win anything more quickly, uh, and that's a test of our resolve. What Putin can't win on the battlefield, he's going to try and win by splitting the West and winning it diplomatically. John Bolton writing at 1945 about the threat of North Korea linked intimately with Beijing and the threat to our ally Japan. You're listening to CBS Eye on the World with John Batchelor. is CBS Eye on the World. Here's John Batchelor. The president of Ukraine addressing a joint session of Congress and the comments afterwards from London reporting, the Churchillian moment. That references to when Winston Churchill, as prime minister of Great Britain, under the attack by the German Empire, traveled to Washington despite the risks of submarines, traveled to Washington in December of 1941, following the attack at Pearl Harbor, meeting and staying with Franklin Roosevelt at the White House and addressing a joint session of Congress, the Churchillian moment. Anatole Levin of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft is here, and I ask first for his comment on Mr. Zelensky goes to Washington as the Churchillian moment and what this means for the conflict now and into the future, if we're framing this as the momentous and highly tragic second war. That means a larger war. And then also to comment on some of the metaphorical language that's being used in some of the reporting online and in the newspapers about the battlefront in Ukraine. Anatole, a very good day to you. Thank you very much. The Churchillian moment. How do you measure that scale compared to what we're seeing right now, which is Europe shivering with the cold weather and short of energy resources. Good evening to you. Hello, John. Well, I mean, there there is a certain parallel uh, to the British-American relationship between June of 1940, when France collapsed, and then uh, President Roosevelt declared that America must be the great arsenal of democracy. Uh, but for the next 18 months, until December 1941, uh, uh, America was, of course, critical to keeping Britain in the war by supplying Britain with uh, weapons, oil, food, um, and even towards the end, escorting uh, British convoys uh, against German submarines. But of course, America did not go to war on the side of Britain until America itself was attacked and attacked not by Germany, but by by Japan. So that is where you know the Churchillian parallel breaks down. If uh, if Japan had not attacked America at Pearl Harbor, um, then. Uh, the likelihood is that uh, given the, the amount of resistance within America uh, to going to war with Nazi Germany, um, American aid would have kept Britain in the war for some time, for a considerable time. But uh, in the end, uh, well, the war would have been decided on the Eastern Front with you know between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. Uh, but um, 
you know, the it would have kept you know it would have kept Britain fighting, but it would you know American aid could never have helped Britain to win. What we have then is a situation that is not a parallel, but is suggestive. And I follow the headlines because that is influential for the American people. And the polling, you know, is mixed. And we're told a reason for Mr. Zelensky's joint session of Congress address was because he's aware that there's flagging support for Ukraine indefinitely. We're given the number of $100 billion of equipment and support already committed to Ukraine, perhaps more in future. Mr. Zelensky commented the other day in the London papers how he was concerned that the British public was flagging in its support of Ukraine. So let's go to other metaphors that are used in reporting here at year's end. Most recently, I've had the Donbass front, where there's constant fighting at a place called Bakhmut, described as, is this the Verdun strategy, referring to 1916, when the German forces and the French and British forces were battling over very, very narrow advances in the trench warfare of the Western Front. But Verdun was understood at the time and has long since been understood as a strategy of attrition. In other words, concentrate our gunfire here and make the French feed the army in to be chewed up as we Germans will feed our army in. Do you measure that that's what we're looking at now in Ukraine as a Verdun scenario where both sides are feeding their soldiers in and, and, and will carry on indefinitely in such a fashion? Well, I think that is certainly the Russian strategy. Um, yeah, I mean, to, to, to draw the Ukrainians you know, into this small area and then pound them with Russian artillery. Uh, but my assumption is that at some stage, if the Russians feel that they have done enough damage to the Ukrainians, that the Russians will launch a new offensive. And from that point of view, uh, the, the, the point of Bakhmut is that it is in the Donbass. And if the Russians could capture Bakhmut and then push further south and capture the whole of the Donbass, they would then be in a stronger position to um, offer a ceasefire to Ukraine on Russian terms. One of the terms would be, uh, at the very least, um, a ceasefire and negotiations uh, for the independence of the whole of the Donbass. So there is a military strategy of attrition, but there is also a political strategy behind this. Now, of course, it must be said, um, that doesn't mean that this will work. Um, after all, you know, the, the, the Germans um, at Verdun uh, aimed to wear down the French army, which they did to a considerable extent, but they also hideously wore down their own army at Verdun. Uh, after Verdun, neither, neither the French nor the German army was ever the same again. Yes, and the Battle of the Somme in the summer of 16 was meant to dis to draw off German forces from Verdun, and that scarred a generation, maybe two generations of your country. So here we are with World War II metaphors, with World War I metaphors. Let's speak of the 21st century, the air war, the drones pounding the civilian infrastructure of Ukraine, the money flowing from America, NATO rearming, uh, a joint military naval exercise between Russia and China in the Pacific. Is this war growing, Anatole? Here at year's end, what do you see for 23? 
<clears throat> well, the Chinese so far have been very careful to keep out of this. They've, you know, they haven't sided with the West, obviously, in terms of sanctions, but they have not sent, um, as far as we know, any significant military or economic aid to Russia. You know, it's worth stressing that because there's so much hysteria about China and Chinese ambitions and Chinese aggression in Washington, whereas. Outside the Far East, where there are elements of this, you know, the South China Sea, but outside the Far East, China has been so cautious on the whole. So one of the things I'm praying for in 2023 is that China will go on being cautious. Um, and also, I mean, if, you know, if we are again <laughs> in Ukraine in something like 1916, that people will, you know, and there have been a number of articles about this, uh, realized that it would have been far, far better for the world if at the end of 1916, all the military participants in the war had recognized that none of them were going to win their maximal objectives, and it would be better to aim at a compromise peace. And you hear talk of that in Britain, because I do not hear talk of it in the US. Right now, is the British public uh, in a mood to say, settle this now? We have about a minute. Parts of the British public are, but the, the political establishment, both the Conservative Party and Labour, are, are in, in lockstep, um, in part because of the British security establishment is in lockstep with the United States. But, you know, how people will feel by the spring, if it's a very tough winter, we don't know. Uh, and uh, also, of course, if at some stage there is a Russian offer of a limited territorial compromise, People may feel, well, you know, when we're not, this is not any longer uh, about the survival of Ukraine or the independence of Ukraine. It is, in fact, over a new version of the Alsace-Lorraine dispute. And there are precious few people today who would have thought that from Germany or France's or Britain's point of view, it was worth losing millions of lives for the sake of Alsace-Lorraine. Anatole Levin of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, commenting at year's end looking to 23 for a better outcome than Verdun. I'm John Batchelor. This is CBS Eye on the World. I'm John Batchelor. Ukraine conflict. I welcome Colonel Jeff McCausen, the United States Army retired, CBS News, visiting Professor Dickinson College in the great state of Pennsylvania and the CEO of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy. Mr. Zelensky addressing a joint session of Congress and this paragraph from his speech. This battle cannot be frozen or postponed. It cannot be ignored, hoping that the ocean or something else will provide a protection. From the United States to China, from Europe to Latin America, and from Africa to Australia, the world is too interconnected and interdependent to allow someone to stay aside and at the same time to feel safe when such a battle continues. Jeff, a very good evening to you. Mr. Zelensky is worried. What is he worried about? Good evening. John, what he's worried about is sustained Western support for the war in Ukraine and, and the opposition to, uh, to Russia in this aggressive war. That's why he used those words as well, that this is not charity, but an investment in global security and democracy. And using the phrase, as you described, I think he tried to cast his speech in the context of what Joe Biden has used as the broad outline of American foreign policy. And that is conflict between democracy and autocracy, which in many ways is global. And Ukraine is just 
one ex- large example of that ongoing struggle at this particular moment. His focus was certainly the United States and the American people as he awaits a shift in the United States Congress to a Republican majority, which may be more skeptical and have vocalized more skepticism towards Ukrainian support. It was also aimed at people in Europe to maintain their support as the United States leads the alliance. And it was certainly aimed at Vladimir Putin and the Russians, as he wanted to underscore with Joe Biden, continued American support as this war continues for the long period of time to come. You're a veteran of NATO as well as the U.S. Army in Europe and around the world. The two important capitals in history in NATO are Washington and London. Does that continue And is this speech another reflection of Mr. Zelensky worried about Parliament, not only Congress, but Parliament, too? It certainly does. I mean, the British have been the second largest military supporter. And the Sunak government did announce a few days ago $300 million in additional military aid to Ukraine. That being said, Britain seems the most hard hit by economic challenges at the moment. A lot of it brought about by the war, but a lot of it brought about by British policy and Brexit. And as a consequence, we see railway workers, we see nurses on strike right now, and energy prices skyrocketing across Europe. So a real concern there with the steadfastness of the British government. That's why I think Mr. Biden hosted who? President Macron to a state dinner in the the White House and not the new prime minister in Great Britain. But, you know, John, many people take this speech that Zelensky delivered before Congress and they compare it to a 1941 speech delivered by Winston Churchill on the same location, talking about the global challenge to democracy at that very difficult moment. We move to the battlefront. In this last week since we talked, Vladimir Putin traveled to Minsk to walk and talk with Lukashenko, the dictator. Is there a Belarus front opening? Is that credible? Does that threaten NATO, Jeff? It's certainly credible about that. And I talked to colleagues in Kiev in the last few days, and the Ukrainians are keeping a close eye on that, forcing them to move some forces to the north, forcing them to create defensive positions along that particular border. That being said, people I talk with in Kiev and elsewhere in Europe believe Mr. Lukashenko is walking a very narrow tightrope. On the one hand, during his meeting with Putin, he wanted to clearly assert Belarusian sovereignty, while at the same time talking about close cooperation with his closest ally and this sort of federation of cooperation between Minsk and Moscow, because I think he's uncertain whether or not the population in Belarus would support such a war or whether or not the, frankly, the Belarusian military would support such a war. He may also fear, quite frankly, that Mr. Putin uh, may over time try to consider finding somebody else to replace Yukoshenkov who might be more conducive to creating that second front which could threaten uh, the supply lines between NATO Europe and Ukraine, which stretch across the country through the battlefield. The American public watches and judges, the British public watches and judges. And as you say, in in Belarus, uh, there is the concern that Lukashenko must at the same time please Moscow and his public. In Moscow, too, Jeff, there's doubts everywhere about the Russian people. They support the Kremlin. I understand that. But there is this little odd fact in speaking to Moscow over these last few days where there's been heavy snowfall. I was told by an informant that the meteorologists, the weather people on television in Moscow, say that this winter is the roughest start since the winter of 1941. 
You mentioned 1941 when Winston Churchill was at the White House following Pearl Harbor. 1941 was the worst year of the 20th century for the Soviets, for the Russians, because of Barbarossa and the invasion of Russia. It tells me, Jeff, that it might be propaganda, but it's one way for Moscow, for the Kremlin, to tell the public this is going to get rough. Do you hear it the same way? Exactly, John. Mr. Putin gave a speech just the other day before the military brass of the Russian Federation, in which he talked about the challenges ahead. And he talked very specifically about the challenges of resupply. And he talked about boots. And he talked about flak jackets. And he talked about winter gear. Even photographs of him and Sergei Shogu, the Minister of Defense, examining the kind of boot that should go to Russian soldiers. And you know, John, the United States intelligence has been looking very carefully, not only at the laydown of military forces, but what forces appear to have low morale and passing that information to Ukraine as they look for places they may want to conduct offensive attacks. The attack in the September up in Kharkiv was partially directed by the thin line of defense the Russians had created and the firm belief that the morale of those forces were very, very low. And that proved to be very correct as the Ukrainians swept through that area very, very quickly. Don't forget, John, something you and I have talked about a lot. As I like to say, particularly in winter for militaries, strategy and tactics is for amateurs. Logistics and sustainment is for professionals. And this will be a test of both sides' ability to sustain their forces and try to conduct offensive operations, as you point out, in perhaps the worst winter since 1941. We go to Bakhmut, which does not strike me as a major decision point for Russia or Ukraine, but they're fighting as if it is. I'm told there are mixed for Russian forces there, some Wagner groups, some of those prisoners that have been released pending fighting on the front, some first-rate troops. It's a mixed group, and Russia's making small advances. But there's also this, Jeff. Russia's using heavy artillery into the region, what looks like an attrition strategy. This, of course, is a way of talking about a mini, mini version of the Battle of Verdun, where the Germans thought that they could wear out the French army. Is attrition strategy a credible plan for the Russians? Will it work? I don't think it'll work, John, but I think it's exactly the strategy they're conducting. And you point out the Wagner Group. It seems to be an effort by Krogozin, the head of the Wagner Group, to assert his particular position as he tries to expand and increase the Wagner Group, as he also enlists more convicts. And there's clear evidence that on-the-spot execution is being conducted against these particular soldiers if they do not conduct continued advances. In some cases, we may be seeing actually what we would call human wave assaults as the Russians try, I think, to find some kind of a victory they can assert before the end of the calendar year, even though in many ways Bakhmut is not of enormous military strategic significance. NATO. NATO is defense of Europe from Russia, and yet Russia's ally is the People's Republic of China. And over these last days off Japanese waters, the Russian Navy, with its flagship participating in the Pacific, and the Chinese warships have been conducting yet another joint naval exercise. Is this significant? Is there any indication that China is leaning to get more involved in Ukraine and, and change the status quo to aggression? I think it has certainly of significance, as it does to suggest some level of military cooperation. But on the other hand, John, this is military cooperation without military resupply. And there's been no evidence of Chinese willingness to provide Russia the military assistance it needs right now in terms of ammunition. In fact, 
I'm told that the, Rus- the Chinese refused to grant the Russians an exemption, which would allow Beijing to export semiconductors and microchips to Moscow, which they desperately need if they're going to manufacture more precision-guided munitions. I also think it was significant, of course, that we had former president of Russia, Medvedev, make a trip to Beijing and personally meet with Xi Jinping. Xi, Xi talked about the close cooperation between the two countries, but he did talk in very broad terms about China's desire for peace. And in the near term, at least, Xi Jinping's number one problem is not the war in Ukraine. His biggest problem is a raging COVID epidemic that could, by some experts' suggestion, kill 100 million Chinese in the coming week. We turn to the future. Long war is talked about now in Moscow. I also hear it in some of the corridors of Europe. Long war. Does that favor either the Russian side or the NATO side, Jeff? I think the long war favors the side, frankly, at this point, that can maintain unity of purpose. And that clearly is a difficulty for NATO because you've got 30 countries you're trying to keep going in the same direction, less difficult, obviously, for Russia. It also favors the country that can maintain not only unity of purpose, but unity of effort. And unity of effort in this particular struggle may be the, the group that has the best industrial base, as we've seen an expenditure of ammunition we haven't seen at least since World War II, and some would say since World War I. And the ability of those two sides to ramp up their industrial base over the coming months to sustain this effort is going to be clearly important. I think finally, John, this is an effort of willpower. Ultimately, war is a challenge of willpower. And I think I begin to fear that we are mere imaging. We are looking at Mr. Putin as he has had setbacks on the battlefield and thinking he'll look for an offering. There's no indication to me that he will do that. His determination seems ironclad. And he made that very clear in the speeches he's delivered in the last few weeks. And secondly, we have a mirror image. I think that we believe if the lights went off in New York and Atlanta and Chicago and half across Ukraine, that the Russian public would rise up. While there's some scattered evidence, as we have suggested, I don't see widespread evidence that we can see the Russian population rise up. The weak link may actually be the morale of the Russian army. Colonel Jeff McCausen, CBS News, U.S. Army retired. I'm John Nash. You're listening to CBS Eye on the World with John Batchelor. This is CBS Eye on the World. I'm John Batchelor. The Russian economy in wartime, the sanctions. I go immediately to Michael Bernstam of the Hoover Institution, my guide, to speak of what we know so far about the oil price cap agreed to by the European Union starting December 5th. Michael, a very good day to you. The numbers are coming in most promising. The report from Reuters is that the Russian export of oil, seaborne oil, has declined in the first week after the cap more than 50%. Is this a surprise, Michael, or is this what we expected to happen? Good evening to you. Good evening to you. It is more than was expected, so much so that now the United States Treasury is discussing already the possibility to reduce the price cap under $60. So uh, generally, it's been a great success. Uh, Currently, the Russian uh, main 
прем ойл юэлс is trading at 57.5, which is by their own admission a disaster for the budget because they are really losing now budget revenues. They have to sell a lot of debt and they're in a fiscal hole. So the first week has been a mitigated uh, success. Uh, for, for the oil price cap, the numbers here are, to give you everybody the scale here, Russia's oil shipment plunged by 1.86 million barrels per day to 1.6 barrels per day overall, a 54% decline. However, who's buying what oil is shipped? Turns out India's buying 50% and China's buying 30%. But there's an important detail here. I'm introduced to the world of oil, and there's a special kind of oil that is sold in the Pacific that has a higher price. What is that, Michael? Yeah, there is a very high-quality oil called ESPO, ESPO uh, which stands for East Siberian Pacific Ocean. It is much, it has low sulfur content, unlike yours. Yours is a heavy oil with a lot of sulfur. Uh, low quality, always sold below the brand, uh, brand uh, world price. But uh, this ESPO uh, always sold kind of either at premium or at the same as brand. Now it sells under $70 per barrel. Uh, so it is uh, $10-$12 lower than brand, so it is a huge discount. But interestingly, now, because of the fear of the secondary sanctions, both the Chinese and the Indians started to reduce by a few percentage points their uh, purchases of Russian oil. Turkey, Turkey is reducing, so everywhere across the board. There is no substitution. They lost the European market, and they cannot f- fully replace it with the uh, non-European market because other countries are reducing uh, the, sh- the purchases of seaborne Russian oil. I remember you reporting right away, that even before the oil price cap, that the India oil traders and even the Chinese oil traders were in a good position to leverage the price, were getting good bids because there was no other customer. Is that uh, continuing, Michael? Oh, it is It is continuing because the U.S. now sells from the ports uh, in the Baltic Sea and uh, in the Black Sea uh, for between 42 and $48 dollars per barrel, which is a huge uh, uh, discount over uh, brand. And now the Indian companies are good entrepreneurs. They are selling Russian oil. Uh, even... Oil producing countries such as Indonesia and Brazil are now buying Russian oil because it is cheaper than their domestic oil. So everyone is now in the re-export business. Yes. If you have tankers, if you have decommissioned tankers and you can uh, uh, ship Russian oil, it's a great business. We wait for the Kremlin's response to the oil price cap. Six days ago, there was a headline saying, any moment now, the, the Kremlin will have a response. Within the last 24 hours, I've checked 48 hours and no response. So we're still waiting, but no cutoff completely of Russian oil extraction, which Vladimir Putin predicted or said that it was possible. Although, as I recall, Michael, your reasoning was there's no market for it. So, of course, they're going to reduce their production because they can't sell it. They've already announced that their production official sources that they expect the reduction of their oil output uh, between one 
uh, and 1.5 million barrels a day. Uh, my own calculations show it's more kind of between 1.5 and uh, 2 million barrels a day uh, because uh, uh, they lost their markets. Uh, for the pipeline oil, it is now only Bulgaria which is buying it. They reported uh, incorrectly that Germany has a new contract. It turns out that Germany has a new contract, but not for the Russian oil, for Kazakhstan oil, which will be shipped via Russia. So generally no buyers in Europe, only seaborne oil for several countries, and uh, 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 Bulgaria including, no pipeline oil, and uh, they have to reduce uh, their production anyway. The European Union, which agreed 27 countries unanimously on the oil price cap, has had another strange development. It's, it's been unanimous again this time about a natural gas price cap for the European Union consumption so that prices don't spike in any one country. Were you surprised they came to this agreement so quickly, Michael? Yeah, I didn't expect it, but uh, this is kind of a very funny agreement uh, because uh, they put the price uh, for to 180 euros per uh, megawatt hour, which is about 200 dollars uh, per uh, 208 dollars per uh, um, uh, million cubic meters, and then they say, okay, but we impose it only if it is 35 dollars for several days, 35 dollars above the cap. So this is like saying that you. You have the uh, you have the speed limit 55 miles per hour, but it is, if it is 65, it is okay. Only we punish you after 65. But this is half. This is much higher anyway because now uh, the world price for natural gas is about 100 uh, 102. Um, euros per megawatt hour. So this price cap is against spikes because they expect, and why? Because the Russian exports to uh, the European Union decreased from 171 million cubic meters to 95, 44% decline. And so they expected that 2023 will be very difficult. But now because of liquefied natural gases coming from the United States, Qatar, Norway, and other places, the International Energy Aid agency says that Europe will actually be all right in 2023 with some more efficiency improvements. And so this price cap is just kind of a security measure. It, it has no big practical meaning at the moment. And finally, President Putin has been commenting about the Russian economy overall. And surprisingly, his opinion is that the contraction, the recession, will be 2.5% in 2022 which is extremely optimistic, I read in the New York Times. As I recall, Michael, it's it. the last time we talked of this, you suggested 6.5. Was that for 2022 or 2023, the expectation? Uh, 6.5 is for 2023. For, 6 point, uh, uh, for 2022, the consensus is about 5%, various international estimates between 4.5 and 6, so it's 5%. And, uh, of course, the Russian statistical agencies will have to oblige and uh, somehow support with all sorts of tricks and uh, smoke, uh, smoke and mirrors. But it is impossible because already in the third quarter it is 7% decline. In this fourth quarter, we don't know yet, but it is also uh, the ballpark 
part of that. So it is impossible, it is against the laws of mathematics that they would have 2.5 or anything, anything less than 4% uh, contraction of GDP. Michael Bernstein of the Hoover Institution, my guide on the sanctions regime towards Russia waging war in Ukraine. And of note here, this is just the first week that we have about the oil price cap after the December 5th beginning. There will be much more statistics coming soon enough in the new year. This is CBS Eye on the World. I'm John Batchelor. You're listening to CBS Eye on the World with John Batchelor. 